Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and this is The Money Movement, a show where we chronicle the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Over the past months on the show, uh, we've focused a lot of our attention on stable coins, on digital dollars, uh, and, and sort of on the broader themes um, that have to do with those types of digital currencies and their synthesis with blockchains. Um, you know, the focus has you know, been on how public chains um, are gonna be the foundation of a new mainstream moment for how payments, settlement, commerce, and sort of broader financial applications take place. And that overarching theme is, is, is really core um, here on the show. But I think uh, it's, a, it's really an important time to check in on one of the more fundamental theses that has sort of sat behind the broader digital currency movement, um, the broader money movement, um, and, and really turning our attention back to the origin of all of this world, really, which is Bitcoin. And, you know, in, in our view, sort of Bitcoin is running in some ways uh, in parallel to this world of smart uh, of stable coins, of smart contracts, of generalized blockchains, but also is very interwoven with them in terms of the market infrastructure, in terms of the, the, the broader thesis um, that's going on here. And clearly, if you're paying attention, Bitcoin has maintained its role as the dominant digital asset and the dominant uh, store of value uh, in the digital asset space. And we're, we're obviously continuing to see uh, you know, growing levels of awareness, growing levels of adoption. Um, we're seeing really significant new categories of support for it as an uh, alternative asset in and of itself. And so today, you know, we want to explore, you know, how the Bitcoin thesis has evolved over time. Um, we can touch on the current and sort of near-term global macro environment. Um, we've talked about how that's driving stable coins. It's also very much driving the Bitcoin thesis and we'll talk about that. And what the major drivers are, of adoption are, are looking to be uh, this year, next year, in the coming years. And, and obviously I, I think, think about what this could be in, in a few years. To drive this discussion, uh, we're joined by two OGs of Bitcoin as an asset class. Uh, with Michael Sunshine, who's Managing Director of Graysdale Investments, one of the largest investment vehicles for Bitcoin in the world. And uh, Dan Moorhead, the CEO and, and Co-Chief Investment Officer of Pantera Capital, uh, you know, uh, which also manages a, a significant set of funds um, in the space and including um, Bitcoin related funds. And you know, both firms and, and both Dan and, and Mike um, have been driving these investment vehicles um, and providing retail and institutional investor access to Bitcoin as an asset class for nearly eight years. So uh, it's really, really awesome to have you guys on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, good. Um, you guys have probably, you know, you have so much perspective uh, on the Bitcoin thesis and, and it's, I, I'm really excited to be able to explore that with, with you both today. Um, I thought, you know, it'd be helpful maybe to kick things off uh, just to talk a little bit about, you know, 
when you first developed a Bitcoin thesis and, and you know, uh, how, how that emerged and, and what you thought then. Um, and, um, and just, I like a little bit of an origin story. And because you guys have been um, in this asset class as, you know, as long as, as almost anyone and, have, and actually professionally in it and, and, and helping other investors be in it for a very, very long time. Maybe just um, a, a brief origin story on your own um, journey into it and, um, and kind of what the thesis was then. If you, if you had it written down from back then and you looked at it, maybe I'll start with you, Dan. Yeah, so my career has been investing in these, you know, disruptions, whether they're Russian privatization or, you know, Middle Eastern equities or Tesla Motors. And that was always kind of my hobby, you know, uh, they weren't the, the biggest uh, things on earth. And I was introduced to Bitcoin in 2011 by my brother and then uh, a year and a half later or so, Pete Berger and Mike Novogratz, uh, friends of mine from school and from Wall Street, Goldman, uh, asked me to talk about Bitcoin with them. And it really catalyzed my looking at it as an opportunity. And we basically started out with a coffee and then I haven't left <laughs> their offices since. And um, it's, it's just, it's the biggest trade of our generation, in my opinion, that, you know, all these other disruptions that, that have traded in the past, they're interesting, they're kind of regional or they just impact, you know, one asset class. This is, you know, going after gold and money and cross-border payments, you know, it's going after these massive, literally largest use cases ever. And the, the kind of the, the light bulb moment for me was at our first uh, gathering, we got all the um, leaders in the Bitcoin industry out to Lake Tahoe in 2013. And I just said, hey, uh, Bitcoin's got the same market cap as Urban Outfitters. And <laughs> I think when they dig up our society, all Planet of the Apes style, it's going to have a bigger impact on the world than Urban Outfitters did. And, you know, we're at L'Oreal now. You know, it's, I just think <laughs> I wouldn't trade Bitcoin for some shampoo, right? Like, it's just going to have a much bigger impact than it's priced right now. Yeah. Uh, that's a great, it's a great story. And obviously, uh, so, you know, it sounds like when that thesis developed, it was, it was clearly under a hundred dollars, um, at the time. And, um, and so, you know, it's been a good thesis <laughs> since then, but, um, that's awesome. Michael. Yeah. My, my journey was a little bit different. So I also, you know, spent time on wall street before getting into the crypto space and I had the, fortunate pleasure of meeting our founder and CEO, Barry Silbert, um, in late 2013, early 2014. And when I met Barry, um, I didn't know much at all about Bitcoin. I wasn't looking to leave the bulge bracket bank I was working for, uh, for a job in the crypto space. I remember sitting around my office, CNBC was on in the background every day. We'd occasionally see Bitcoin show up on CNBC and have a little laugh or a giggle about it, but no one really knew anything or really took it seriously. And when I interviewed with Barry to, you know, come join what's become now Grayscale, um, you know, he, he kind of sold me on this idea that money has just changed so many times throughout society. It's just taken so many forms and ultimately society dictates what constitutes money. And once he started talking about it in that respect, it started to pique my interest. And then he came up with this analogy that has stuck with me ever since, which is when we think about how transformative the cell phone was 
to developing communications in the developing world where there were never landlines, but suddenly you popped up cell phone towers and gave everybody this little tiny piece of plastic and suddenly everyone was talking, he started to start you know, throwing statistics at me, thinking that half the world's adult population didn't have access to financial services, but they all had cell phones. And so this idea that you could put a bank in everybody's pocket was this like light bulb, aha, transformative moment. And um, you know, now seven years later, um, you know, Grayscale has you know, become a five plus billion dollar asset manager, you know, largest in the space. Um, the, the kind of tailwinds and the people and the human capital and actual capital that's gotten involved. Um, it's just been unbelievable to see and be a part of. Um, I don't think we're yet at that moment where Bitcoin is at that inflection point that does create financial inclusion, but I do think we're well on our way. And my faith and thesis around it still hasn't changed from that initial conversation with Barry. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, a lot of people have similar aha moments uh, in, in developing their thesis. So I guess um, each of you, um, you know, within this sort of asset class of sort of managed products for investors um, to, you know, people can go, uh, you know, go buy Bitcoin, right? Uh, in lots of different ways now, the, the number of ways that people can do that around the world is, is proliferated greatly, but, but um, you've built products that are um, for, you know, large investors, for, you know, people to invest through, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, in an equity market-like fashion, uh, or or you know through through uh, electronic markets and so on, maybe just for a second, Dan, just talk about the Bitcoin kind of funds um, and and you know you you had a thesis then how they performed uh, from that uh, early stage. Yeah, so we've just been trying to help uh, individuals or institutions get exposure to the blockchain space. As you remember back in 2011, 12, and 13, it was definitely more of a wild west feel, right? Mt. Gox was the custodian of our industry. A lot of kind of, you know, at least immature, incompetent behavior. Uh, and so we were trying to offer a very professional way for, for people to invest. And so uh, our Bitcoin fund was the first thing on earth to have Ernst & Young audit it. Um, you know, uh, all the normal law firms and things people would expect. And, it's just allowing LPs and to get invested in the blockchain space mm -hmm. in a vehicle they they know and understand. And you know we're still waiting for an ETF. You know that was seven years ago. Um, I still think we still have a good bit of time for for that to come to our space. So we've set all of our products up as hedge funds because it's a, it's an easy way for um, you know accredited investors to invest in the space, either just crypto, uh, either just Bitcoin or crypto generally or venture. Right. Michael? Yeah, so I think we've taken a similar thesis, but a slightly different approach um, to Pantera. Um, at Grayscale now, we've developed a suite of 10 investment products. Um, nine of them give investors the ability to gain exposure to a single digital currency. Um, and then the 10th product is a diversified basket of large cap funds. Um, rather than going the hedge fund route, um, we have launched these as primarily as trust structures. So similar to the way investors are used to gaining exposure to a commodity um, or a lot of other subsets of the market. And we've um, 
had a lot of success, um, as has Pantera, because even though our firms have come along and the space has come along over the last seven years, buying Bitcoin still does not exist in the same places that investors are used to making investments in stocks and bonds and all the other things that they invest in. Mm -hmm. So by packaging up this exposure inside investment structures, um, we really opened access to a lot of folks. So for us, we have an ongoing private placement. The Bitcoin Trust um, now has you know, north of 2% of the outstanding Bitcoin float inside the product. Um, so if you're accredited, you can invest through the private placement. Non-accredited investors um, can participate and, and trade shares in the Bitcoin product on the public market here in the US under the symbol GBTC. Um, and so it's been, you know, really rewarding. And again, I think anything that firms like Grayscale and Pantera, Circle, anyone that any of us can do to really remove those barriers to entry to make crypto access, you know, avoiding the challenges of sourcing, storing, safekeeping, et cetera, is really helping to draw more capital and more interest into the asset class. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's matured immensely. Just sort of looking back over this arc of time from, say, 2013 to, uh, to, 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 you know, to today, um, you know, what's changed for, for either of you in your own thesis on Bitcoin? I mean, I, I think there's sort of uh, these narratives, these memes, these sort of themes that have been there and, and people have kind of certain themes have ebbed and flowed. And, um, you know, is there, is there a dimension of this thesis that where the convictions even deeper than before, um, you know, may, maybe it's juxtaposition with uh, with where we are in the world today, or um, you know, I, I'd I'd love to hear you both opine a little bit on kind of you know how how the thesis has evolved, and and I think it's okay for a thesis to not be exactly the same uh, at one point. There should be some a thread that runs through it, of course, but. Um, you know, how do you feel like that thesis has evolved in, in articulating this opportunity, um, you know, to investors today? Uh, I'll jump in. So I think it's, it's actually two different pieces, um, Jeremy. I think the first is the thesis. And I think in tandem with that, it's also who is showing up um, around this thesis and, and what they're doing. So I remember back in 2014, 2015, we had a lot of family offices, a lot of kind of folks that were talking about Bitcoin and Silicon Valley and things like that. But it was still a pretty niche investment um, that most people were, were not willing to take that leap of faith into. There was a lot of pushback um, given there might not have been enough regulatory clarity for them. There might not have been enough of a you know, track record around Bitcoin only been introduced a couple of years prior to then. Um, you really did not start to see much of that until actually, I think for me, one of the turning points um, was uh, Goldman Sachs investing in Circle. Um, I think when you started to see that real institutional participation in digital currency related businesses, it provided a certain level of air cover that it was okay for other investors to get involved in the space. And so you quickly started to see people moving away from Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme or it's only for criminals and people really started to do their homework. And I think what's emerged now probably over the last call it two and a half plus years is for now two narratives, one that we really believe in and understand, the other that quite frankly drives us crazy. 
So the first is um, that Bitcoin should be viewed as a digital gold or a digital store of value, um, or perhaps a store of value for a world that's gone ever more digital. Um, and maybe we need to start moving away from historical, you know, in stores of value, inflation hedges, et cetera. And when a lot of folks examine those overlapping attributes between assets like gold and Bitcoin, they really do start to see that Bitcoin um, can, on many fronts, really outshine gold. Now, yeah, as that has happened and really solidified in the investment community, there is this prevalent narrative that somehow Bitcoin is not a success because Jeremy, Dan, and Michael are not buying lattes with Bitcoin and uh, somehow that it has failed. And we think that that could not be further from the truth. Um, you know, this is an asset that didn't even exist, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And the amount of development that's gone around it is truly astounding. So anytime you guys hear that, I'm hope hopefully you dispel that just as much as we do. Um, and I think in a similar fashion, you know, as, as this thesis has developed, certainly our investor base has shifted ever more into institutional investors. And so we deal with a lot of hedge funds, registered investment advisors, pensions, endowments, um, and really started to see investors that have um, oftentimes much more stringent investment mandates really starting to make room in their portfolio allocations for digital currency, which has been super, super validating and really exciting from our perspective to see them getting involved. Yeah, I mean, uh, one comment, and I, I want to hear Dan's uh, you know view on this evolution. But you know, I think um, you know the, the sort of monetary policy of Bitcoin and the sort of um, this you know, rapid inflation or distribution over these first twelve plus years, um, and then this sort of long tail um, of of steady state uh, you know inflation, so to speak. Um, you know. I, I think some of the brightest minds who think about this over the long run, you know, feel like, you know, the, 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 the amount of the, the monetary base needs to grow much, much, much larger into the trillions, you know, and, and when it gets, when the monetary base gets into the trillions, you know, the, the, the ability to transact in this as a payment medium will really start to take hold. Um, and, um, and obviously the utility value of, you know, layer two models and all the things that are that are evolving. We're still in the early stages of that, and and, and I even had a view at one point on this that you know, it, might, it might take it might take thirty years to get to that point um, where it's just a it's a preferred it, it becomes a preferred medium of exchange as a as a global you know reserve asset as well, um, and that's okay. Like you can have a thesis that's thirty years on this kind of stuff. You don't have to bet that next week it's used to buy lattes. Um, yeah, yes. Dan, I, I would love to hear how the thesis has evolved in, in your mind. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I love the way you posed it. And I would even say, to some extent, what's changed? The answer is what hasn't changed? Bitcoin. It never changes, right? And that's why it's so powerful. And that's why people want to store $200 billion in it. And the, you know, the gripe is, oh, you know, it hasn't evolved or it doesn't do this or it doesn't do that. And I'll say, you know, it's an interesting, you know, side thing we could talk about. But the thing that really makes Bitcoin appealing is it doesn't change. It's, it's you know, fixed and it's been proven. It's, you know, 24-7 uptime for 11 years. It's never fallen over, never been hacked. And, you know, Swift gets hacked. Facebook goes down. Like, everything breaks, right? And that Bitcoin never breaks because it's, it's built. The other thing that's never changed is it's never lost number one status. It's been number one for 11 years, right? 
number two's changed a lot. You know, it's, you know, XRP, Ethereum, you know, Litecoin, everything cycles through. And, you know, all these things come and go and Bitcoin's still 60% of the entire market gap in the entire industry. So if you're, if you're talking about, you know, evolution, you know, there are some really cool things happening. Obviously, stable coins, uh, a lot of smart contract things, DeFi, a lot of cool things happening, but there is a use case for the storage of wealth and a, you know, censorship resistant thing and Bitcoin's been doing that great. Yeah. And so it is, it's fun to hear, you know, like there are some people that thought, you know, Bitcoin was gonna change everything overnight and, you know, do a thousand different things. What it's doing, it's doing really well. Yeah. Uh, slow and steady, um, and and it's 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 obviously really really incredible. Um, I think um, you know it sort of tie, ties into you know the the thesis that has always existed, which is you know the Bitcoin was obviously born out of the financial crisis. One could argue that the you know the Great Recession um, and you know, a, a view about, um, you know, the, the grand monetary experiments that, uh, you know, kicked off really um, in, in 2009, or really in 2008, but very heavily into 2009, and then ongoing. Um, and, and sort of, um, you know, that, that drove a lot of the global macro thesis. Um, but obviously, today, the current global macro environment, um, has profound implications, you know, for, for Bitcoin in the coming years and arguably in the coming decade, decades. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think, um, uh, Dan, you obviously have a, have a, a distinguished career in trading global macro uh, for some really significant, you know, firms and um, this, this sort of uh, level of, of monetary invention intervention that's happening, not just in the United States, but every, everywhere in the world. What, what is this going to mean um, for, from your perspective in terms of, um, you know, the Bitcoin thesis now? No, I, I, I think you're right that, you know, Bitcoin was born in a financial crisis and it's going to come of age in this one. And the thing we put in our, I think, May investor letter was, Quoting Satoshi in the first block of Bitcoin, the Genesis block, he put a Times, uh, the Times of London headline about another bank bailout that was outrageous to yeah. Satoshi. It was 50 billion pounds. Like, we're throwing around 50 billion literally every four days in the United States. I mean, you know, Satoshi's, you know, rolling over in his, her grave, whatever. Um, the amount of money that's being printed now makes whatever Satoshi was frustrated with just completely irrelevant. Yeah. And, and this is and, you know, this is the United States, right? The the trillions and trillions, and you know that's the full faith and credit of the United States. And you know, hey, we're eventually going to grow and we're going to pay it back and all that good good stuff. Or maybe we don't have to. Maybe it just is you know uh, sort of uh, monetized out of existence. Um, and and whatever, there's various arguments about that. But around the world, you know, you know, the United States is whatever it is, 350 million people, it's a small fraction of the world and every government everywhere is uh, undertaking dramatic fiscal stimulus measures in these dramatic impact on, on, um, on their currencies, uh, on their outlook, on the ability for them to operate their treasuries, all these things that are, you know, we have not yet seen the dominoes fall, but clearly there will be more that fall. Seems like this is gonna, you know, continue to kind of amplify 
interest uh, around the world, not just from, you know, big pension funds in the United States, which is great to see that level of, of, of interest starting to emerge, but just, you know, to the quote unquote man on the street uh, in, in a lot of countries. Um, Michael, do you, do you sort of feel like there's like a, a new wave of awareness that's going to grow um, out of, you know, the, the current environment around the world? I think there, I think there actually already is. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that investors tell us that for them makes Bitcoin investable um, is the fact that it hasn't died. Um, the fact that it has been called dead, no shortage of times, it has been challenged by other digital currencies, by all kinds of things over the years. And when a lot of them saw the massive deleveraging in the market in March as the pandemic really took hold and just pretty much brought the entire world to a grinding halt um, and then saw how Bitcoin snapped back even faster um, and more fervently than other asset classes. It caused a lot of folks to at least share with us that they're really taking the time to drill into what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin and what has changed about it or not changed about it over time. And for a lot of them, one of the very first things that we talk about or that they're self-educating on is the verifiable scarcity of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And when you think about Bitcoin's verifiable scarcity in the context of an environment where you have governments domestically and abroad, you know, just printing unlimited amounts of money to really, I guess, print our way out of the problems that we're now in, it does really shine light on one of, you know, the most important attributes about Bitcoin that we all know, that we all love, and that we all believe will continue to always be a core attribute of the protocol. And a lot of investors, as a result of understanding that, I think are really saying that there is some part of their portfolio that deserves to have an allocation to an asset that they know will not be intervened with, will not be diluted, um, because more of it won't get created, and that they can very predictably know what amount of it is going to be in the supply at any point in time. Yeah. And um, that's not lost on people. Um, and that's a pretty transformative idea, particularly in this environment. And so while, you know, it's absolutely horrific, the amount of loss of life and all the hardships that are going on around the world, it is for sure shedding light on a very, very important aspect of Bitcoin here and abroad. Um, and something that we're, we're really excited that is giving people an opportunity to, mm -hmm. to understand this asset better. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch. Um, obviously, if you zoom out and you go back to 2013 to, to today, right? Uh, Bitcoin is 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 completely uncorrelated to kind of anything else, right? It's just like, obviously, it's like the best performing financial asset over that period of time. I and mean, maybe there's some stock I don't know of that's had a bigger run, but, um, but um, you know, and, and, and you can't draw a line. There's no chart uh, that matches that. Now, you know, over time, you've sort of had these varying levels of correlation. Um, you know, th this year, there's been a higher correlation to gold, um, and gold's really been a, a safe haven asset, and there's a lot of, of uh, you know, capital there. Um, there was a piece yesterday that was saying there's, uh, the, the correlation between the S&P 500 and Bitcoin's higher than it's been before. And, you know, you saw the tech sell-off last week, and you saw a corresponding risk-off in the crypto markets. And there's like lots of capital at play, lots of pockets of capital at play in 
in the in this investing in this space there's momentum there's speculative there's arbitrage there's long there's all these different positions what do you guys think about vis-a-vis that correlation does it matter does it not matter um just it would be interested in in your thoughts dan maybe start with you yeah we yeah we've studied this and and it is true that for very short periods of time when there's a steep sell-off in the s p and there's been five in bitcoin's life uh Bitcoin becomes more highly correlated around 0.8 to the S&P, but it's only correlated for about 32 days on average. And then over 70 days, it kind of dissipates. Yeah. And that's what we predicted in our March investor letter. And it's actually pretty much happened that Bitcoin did go down 50% when the S&P went down. It then stayed down there for just a couple of weeks and then has exploded back up. And it's way higher than it it you know, was in March, way higher than it was at the beginning of the year. And yeah, it's a little bit off because the tech sell off. But that, that's our view. It's only in very, very short, uh, very steep declines in the S&P. Is there a correlation? If you look at it over any longer period, it's around 0.1, which is essentially nothing. Right. And there is no other asset like that that has a 209% compound annual growth rate and essentially zero correlation to everything else. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, in the short run, it seems like it's correlated but in the long run it isn't. Right. And, and one of the best examples of that is Bitcoin goes way up as we've seen, and it also goes down 80% every couple of years. It's had a lot of 80% downdrafts. It's only had one year out of the last nine years where the low for the year was below prior lows. So yeah, it goes down 80% a lot, but even at 80% below its peak, it's higher than it was before because it just went up 1500% or you know, 16,000% like our Bitcoin fund, right? It just, it keeps going up so high that even when it has these, you know, admittedly scary downdrafts, it's reaching a higher plateau. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it's, um, it's good. Uh, very helpful, Dan. I, I appreciate that perspective and I, I think that's right. So as, you know, we, we look now, you know, it feels like we've all been in this space for, for um, seven, eight years um, and, you've sort of experienced a lot of iterations. It feels to me at least that right now things are moving incredibly fast. Like there's, there's unbelievable progress in market infrastructure for Bitcoin, regulatory, you know, regulatory treatments, you know, a lot clearer and around the world sort of supported. Um, the, the pace is, is there, um, you know, beyond the sort of global macro environment, the, the sort of that part of the thesis, which is obviously very, very supportive of, of Bitcoin, you know, what do you believe the biggest drivers are um, in the next, you know, year, two years? Uh, hmm. I don't know that I have one for the next year or two, but I'll tell you something that my team is paying a lot of attention to. Um, you know, again, I think in the near term, this idea of thinking about Bitcoin as a store of value um, is, is probably in the near term, the killer use case for Bitcoin. We all know and believe Bitcoin can have all kinds of other use cases as time goes on and maybe it develops other killer use cases, maybe it doesn't. Um, but certainly one audience that is very crucial to this is the younger audience of investors. Um, over about the next 25 years or so, I think it's almost 70, um, 70 trillion is gonna pass over um, to younger generations. And um, you know, from boomers and, and um, you know, down to millennials and, and Gen Z, et cetera. And when you think about the way assets that are currently postured today, 
and how they're going to get postured as they get passed down to that younger generation. Um, we're certainly definitely not saying that all of that money is going into crypto, but we'd be hard pressed to believe that crypto does not somehow become yeah. the beneficiary of this great generational yeah. wealth transfer. Totally. Um, so we're already starting to see that, but, but that's one thing we're definitely paying attention to. My, my son is in that group. He's 20 and he started uh, to hold investments in 2013 when he was young. And <laughs> I mean, when, when you see you know, something like that happen, uh, you know, like his conviction is like, you know, of course, where I'm, I'm going to invest in crypto. Right. I mean, like, it's the generation. Why would I buy Tesla when I can right. It's that? the generation raised on Venmo and Tesla and Gmail, and you know, it's it's just apples and oranges, and maybe things like gold and other things just will not ever resonate with that younger audience of investors. Yeah, absolutely. Dan, what, what are you seeing uh, beyond the global macro uh, piece here as like with the kind of acceleration in the space, what, what do you see as drivers? Yeah, so the global macro story is so unprecedented and compelling, it's, it's easy to focus on that. But the fundamental story for blockchain, as you know well at Circle and USDC, it's happening. Yeah. You know, when your bank is physically closed because of the pandemic or the other types of payment services you're used to, you need a natively digital thing to get done what you're trying to do. Um, you know, USDC volumes have tripled over the last few months. We track a uh, index of other um, portfolio companies like Circle that we're invested in. And it's up 120% since the pandemic started. Actual transactions using mainly Bitcoin, but sometimes other cryptocurrencies to do something, move money back home to the Philippines or, you know, whatever the use case is, is people can't, you know, can't get things done. Uh, we're investing in a company called CoinMe that has physical kiosks in Safeways, right? And if you Google Bitcoin near me, it's going to pop up, you know, 25 different, you know, Safeways or Kroger's or whatever in your neighborhood. And those are essential businesses. They're open. You can go in, you can feed 300 bucks into the machine and it pops out in Manila, right? Like that is why Bitcoin's working. Um, and then the other thing that I'm just talking about catalysts is the three of us have been dealing with regulators for eight years. <laughs> we were so positive on the industry. I'll admit, I had no idea the OCC was going to approve Bitcoin as a, a custodial asset yeah. for national security banks this quickly. Yeah. That's, that stuff's great, right? I like, don't even know most people unique. know what the OCC even is before that announcement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, but they will when they walk into their bank branch and there's a sign, do you want to buy Bitcoin or store Bitcoin here? I mean, right. to me, things like that are really showing that it's not kind of a fringe little like yeah, no, it's, it's. I mean, this is pretty legit. Nationally chartered banks storing right. your Bitcoin. Yeah, there's this sort of classic Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm. You know, the, there's always been. You know, I, I was giving speeches in 2014 about when, you know when's the mainstream moment for all this sort of stuff, and what are all the things that have to happen: regulatory, market infrastructure, you know, usability, scalability, all, all this kind of stuff, and. Um, you know, the, the, you know the, the early adopter to mainstream phase, that chasm, like we're kind of like, we are like leaping over it as we speak, uh, you know, and, and those curves that you see, you know, that the good news is, is that the, 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 the part before the chasm is, is, is typically, you know, like 20% of the market. And then, you know, the, the remaining 80% of the market comes in, uh, you know, over, over an extended period of time. So it, do, it does feel like usage and, and awareness and all these things are, are, are very much there. And, and that is absolutely outside of just this global macro context. So it's a gr great, great uh, perspective on that. I wanna um, 
you know, change, uh, you know, ch change to a slightly more abstract, or not even necessarily abstract, but a, a very different kind of question, which is, as, you know, this grows as a non-sovereign, you know, sort of uh, uncensorable uh, digital store of value, as, as it's recognized as that, um, you know, do, do we see it being accumulated as a reserve currency? Um, do we see it uh, emerging in the next three years as a balance sheet asset in more and more central banks? Um, do we think that China and Russia maybe already have Bitcoin on their balance sheet, but it's in some tucked away footnote or, or whatnot? I mean, we know the Russian Federation built their own mining infrastructure and what are they doing with that Bitcoin? Um, is, that, is that a reserve? Um, you know, that, that's there. And how seriously are, you know, that reserve currency status is, is something that I think you know, people uh, who, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed walking into the space sort of said, that's going to happen. And that was one of the most, you know, the things that was perceived to be ex just preposterous uh, and, and ludicrous uh, by, by anyone who was serious at all. But actually, it might be happening right now. Um, and and yeah. geopolitical geopolitical things, etc. I'd love to hear your thoughts on on. on you know, on there's there's what two hundred billion dollars of, of of Bitcoin out there today, right? I think that when you're already seeing public companies like MicroStrategy, you know, just very publicly put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, um, I have a hard time believing that you know state actors um, either are not already or we'll, we'll soon be doing so in the future. I think for- They gotta experiment with it at least to be like, what the hell Absolutely, like if anything, it's like a call option for them, right? Um, and whether they're publicly doing things like building mining and infrastructure and things of that nature to support the asset or not, um, they're gonna kind of have to be there because they're, Bitcoin's infectious. You know, once you learn about Bitcoin, um, you kind of can't shut up about it. And then you talk about it to everybody else. And, um, you know, whether it's Russia or China or whatever it is around the world, um, the citizens of all of the, in all of these geographies are using Bitcoin. I mean, it's, yeah. it's explosive. So I have a hard time seeing how, how they could ignore it. Um, not to mention the fact that they are certainly glommed on to this idea of blockchain technology and the emergence of, you know, sovereign, um, you know, you know, central bank digital currencies sure. and, and things of that nature where they can actually have quite a bit more oversight and control of, uh, of their own currency. Yeah. Dan, what do you think? Reserve currency? Are we, are, are we there yet? <laughs> not, not. Uh, yeah, I totally believe it will be a reserve currency. Um, it, and it's entirely rational to use it as a reserve currency today. Um, you know, certain countries are, are complaining about the dollars, you know, Germany around um, the world, it's hard to change. There's no other currency, you know, paper currency that's ever going to replace the dollar. Uh, but Bitcoin could. If you wanted to bet on the over-under on three years, though, unfortunately, I'd say over. You know, I think it's central banks are very slow moving. Yeah. They've been talking about diversifying or, or deacquisitioning gold for like 20 years. And they're, you know, they only move like 3% of it. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a very slow pace. So, of all the things that are gonna happen, being a reserve currency might be one of the last ones. Yeah, yeah, and that's the maybe on the twenty to thirty year thesis. But there's pockets of activity, obviously, that that are there. Um, well, so um, we're we're kind of getting close to winding up here, and we can't uh, have this episode without price predictions. 
Um, oh, no. And you guys do this. <laughs> you guys, uh, you can, you can um, hedge however you want. Um, but, you know, we're at 10,000 now. Um, you know, where, where are we at the end of this year? Where are we in, in three years? All right, I'm, I'm gonna go first. So I can't give you a price prediction. Because you've got this tradable product. My, my lawyers will have a field day, Jeremy. Um, I'll tell you a couple things to look out for. Um, one, the Grayscale team just authored a paper called Valuing Bitcoin. Um, it's on our website, go check it out. Um, a lot of investors say to us, it's not a cash flowing asset. How do I value it, et cetera. We put together a whole series of metrics that people can look at to identify signals that may lead to certain valuations for Bitcoin. Um, and hopefully that's a good resource. Um, in my opinion, um, Bitcoin is not something that people should be putting more money into than they can afford to lose. Think of it as an early stage technology. Buyer beware, I'm gonna flash at everybody. Um, it does have those 80% drawdowns, but from here, um, Bitcoin either is a hell of a lot higher and a lot more valuable than it is today, or something somehow comes along and displaces Bitcoin, and uh, we all move on to something else. Right. That's really helpful. We'll put uh, the, your uh, link to valuing Bitcoin um, in, in, uh, in, the, in, in the show uh, wow. notes and stuff. That's great. Dan, uh, you're, you're uh, out in front with price predictions more often, um, but I would just love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, our predictions are normally the same is that it's got to it's got a nine year 209% compound annual growth rate. And we think that'll continue. And it's it is just that simple that, you know, it has some bubbles it has some down trades. But if it got back onto that trend, it would be at 100,000 at the end of next year. And in the normal market saying something goes up 10x is ludicrous. And you know, you, you, you'd be ridiculed. But it happens every three or four years and all the factors are coming together. So I think it is a pretty good shot that it hits yeah. um, 100,000 at the end of next year. Yeah. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, this is really excellent. Um, really appreciate both of you, you know, joining, sharing the, this long-term perspective and having, you know, been, been there all along the way and, and your outlook and what you're seeing. I think it's, it's, uh, it's really tremendous. And, and all, obviously, uh, you guys have done a tremendous service to, uh, to investors um, who've participated in this as well. So thanks again for uh, joining the Money Movement this week. Awesome. Thanks for being I'm thanks you're here. You're welcome. So interesting moment in time as you know, Bitcoin continues to sit at 10,000 and um, all of these you know, kind of fundamental supporting thesis continue as well. Um, and as we've talked about, uh, you know, the, the non-sovereign store of value thesis sits alongside the digitization, the true digitization of, uh, you know, reserve currencies through things like U.S. dollar coin um, and the adoption of, of stable coins and blockchain infrastructure as a whole. All of these continuing to run very much in parallel and, and reinforcing each other um, in terms of awareness and, uh, and adoption. Uh, next week, we're actually taking off uh, and we'll be back soon with uh, more episodes. Uh, the following week, we're going to be doing something unique, which is um, I'm going to be hosting an AMA on the money movement. We'll be talking about how people can participate in live questions, asynchronous questions, and uh, should be a lot of fun. So until next time, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you.